The New Testament reading is, can be found on page 1036, and it's taken from the Gospel according to St. Luke, and it's chapter 7, and it's from verses 36 to 50. It's, for me, one of the most beautiful responses to meeting Jesus. It's amazing asked to read today. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly. Jesus said, then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven, little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Can I just uh, introduce, oh, let me just take this, Simon, would you as, as a church like to welcome Simon uh, to us today? It's great to meet you. Great yeah. to be with you. Um, actually, I think uh, we... we We've met before briefly, but we met about three weeks ago playing cricket in which basically you smashed the ball everywhere, um, but you said that you were available to come and preach this Sunday as well and to be with us. So thank you for taking time uh, to do that uh, and to be with us. Some of you will know him, some of you will know nothing about who he is, uh, but thank you for taking time and to be with us today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. I I think I was last here, I did speak here about eight years ago maybe, so I don't know if some of you are around there, but uh, got a few friends, long-term friends with the Rogers, so a few connections in this church. Uh, anyway, in terms of context, I'm going to show a few pictures just to set the scene, so hopefully they'll be coming up there now. That's, you had Paul Guinness, and you got links with, with, with Burundi now through, through him, that long-term relationship. He was, I was here 
uh, two weeks ago listening to him share a bit. And that's, that's been my home for the last 20 years. So the Guinnesses live just along the street from us, and they're very uh, dear friends. In fact, we help sort of get them together uh, in, their, in their journey of uh, union. Um, so that is where it is, and it's, it, it, it is a hell of a mess. It is the hungriest country in the world. It's got the highest rate of malnutrition. It's probably a third hungriest. Is that all right? And uh, I, I went out there when it was the most dangerous country in the world. So people tried to kill me. People I care about were killed. I never thought I'd make the age of 30. Um, I never thought I'd get married and have children. So a very extreme context. And then a month ago, we moved here to Bath. So slightly different, slightly different challenges. And I'll be talking about that tonight. I'd love you to come along. I want to learn from you as maybe you can learn from some of the stuff that I've been involved in. Uh, not saying we've got all the answers as to how we share our faith. And it's challenging this culture, isn't it? But it is the most important thing to be a fisher of men and women. That is uh, our God-given mandate and remit whilst we're here in our different contexts with our different passions and giftings and that sort of stuff. Next one. So there you go. That's the language. Nice one. Next one. And that's 2015. So uh, it kicked off again. So 10 years of peace, 2005. So my most extreme years, if you like, were 1999 to 2002 or three, and then peace came 2005, then we had 10 years of peace, and then that kicked off. By this stage, you've got a wife, got three children. When I proposed to Lizzie, I said, are you ready to be a young widow? And, and she, she was in for it. So, you know, she signed up to the full implications of saying Jesus is Lord, and that means paying the ultimate cost maybe. And then we get our three kids, and it's a bit different, isn't it? But we still, the best thing we can give our kids is an authentic faith, modeling of an authentic faith and living rather than just existing or going through the motions and, and believing that God is big enough to change even the most screwed up place on the whole planet, like Burundi. So that is my passion. I'm, we're now based in Bath, and I'll be coming and going, and I'm in daily touch with them. Next one. Uh, so my logic, and as we're going to look at this, beautiful. It's probably my favorite Jesus encounter. My logic is how far is too far when Jesus went that far for us? And so that's one of the things I've done. It's a 13-chapter book. There's 13 films of discipleship series, and yeah, so it's about being all in for Jesus. So if you're up for that, I've got those at the back afterwards. Next one, I've also got that one. That's a, a devotional. If you feel, if you resonate with it, this morning's message, which is all rooted in grace, but it's very challenging, then if you want a daily shot in the arm for a passionate all-in discipleship, again, get that at the end. I'll be at the back, and I'd love you to, uh, to do that because I know it'll stir you up. It's a voted devotional of the year, so it can't be rubbish. So if you want an encouragement to, to get something, go for it. Next one. Uh, so that's the family. So yeah, I didn't expect to have the chance to get married and have kids, but I did. It's all grace. Uh, and then uh, look at my daughter there. I never get tired of telling her story because she's named after the next one. And that little girl there, I held her, in my, held her in my arms in 1997, and I heard her story. And her story was that she started to light down a toilet. So she was thrown away. She was a rejected piece of flesh. Uh, and, and then the next person in the toilet saw her down there at the university hostel, and she, they reached down and picked her up and she was still alive. The reason why she didn't die was that her neck got caught in the U-bend of the toilet, and they, 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 they cleaned her off, and they got poo on themselves in the process, and they fed her through a straw like a little bird. She weighed just a couple of pounds, and now next one. Isn't that stunning? That's her. Beautiful. And uh, she, anyway, why do I tell this story? When I married Lizzie, I said, if, if ever blessed with a daughter, I want to name my daughter after that girl. Next one. So little white one is named after big black one. 18 years later, she ended up being our babysitter. And my friend who rescued her gave her the most beautiful name. Their names are Grace. And I love that because that's my story, and I hope it's your story too. That it doesn't, doesn't matter whether we're multi-murdering rapists, pillaging idiots in Central Africa, or very self-absorbed people here in Bath. We all need God's grace, don't we? 
And hear this, you know, some of us, we need to really get this. Religion is being down that metaphorical pit and thinking that we can get out by ourselves, but you can't. There's a massive chasm. It's impossible for that rejected fetus grace to have got out by herself. But the glorious message that we have is that Jesus, God, with flesh on, the incarnation, he came down to do the impossible, to pluck us up, to lift us up, to take up on him as he cleans us off so that he can now look at each one of us and say, you're beautiful, I love you, you're made in my image. Now, come on, let's live. That's grace. That's worth living and dying for. And that's very, very powerful. And I love it. Next one, she ends up, we get her scholarship to go to America and study in the promised land. She gets distinction. She comes top of the class from the pit of a toilet to living her dream. Two months ago, she comes back to Burundi. She's now working for me in social media, telling all stories of other orphans and other great testimonies of faith. That's grace, isn't it? That's the God of the impossible. I don't know how screwed up your life is this morning, how dark you feel you're in, but there's always hope. And I'm saying that to myself in what has seen, humanly speaking, a very hopeless situation for the last 20 years. But we're still in the battle. I've had some sucker punches. I'm still in there. I hope you still are. Sometimes we are just hanging on by the, by the skin of our teeth on this rocky road. But it is worth it. So hang on in there. And as we look at this lovely encounter now, you'll be blown away. It's a familiar story, yeah, but you're going to get some fresh insights, hopefully. In terms of the hungriest country in the world, that, that, that lovely little blonde-haired girl, She's four years old, my Canadian friend's daughter. She's four years old. The girl in the middle is four years old and probably dead now. And that's sick and wrong, isn't it? But it's a very powerful visual of a statistic that we can't get of 56% of the country malnourished. Next one. Keep going on. That's the guy I've handed on to, but we haven't got time for stories. Next one. Okay, so maybe one more. And uh, so, you know, what, what we've done for the last 13 years of many things out there. So I'm an evangelist at heart, but we do all sorts of things. We spent 15 organizations we support involved in agriculture and education, AIDS and street kids and orphans and, and unreached people group stuff, indigenous, um, indigenous mission training, all sorts of stuff. But, but one thing we've done for the last 13 years is uh, for two weeks in August, and I would have said this eight, eight years ago when I was last here, whenever it was, uh, we send out for two weeks, just last month, 700 young people, 700 times 14 days times eight hours a day. That's a lot of very intentional outreach, isn't it? And they led 8,900 people to Jesus in those two weeks. It's a very fertile field. Because we've done it for 13 years, it's about 175,000 people coming to Christ. It's mind-blowing. He is the God of the immeasurably more than all we can ask for or imagine. And those guys have such boldness. And you see, when you go out and you see the power of God, like casting out demons, like healing the sick, then that stirs up your faith to believe that God can do more. And you can't deny a story. That's one of the things I'm going to share tonight. You've all got a story. And, and when you tell these stories, well, you can come out and meet them. You can come out and meet my friend Agnes, who was deaf, dumb, blind, and, and was completely uh, healed on every level. Now, that doesn't always happen, does it? But it, it, God, God can do whatever he wants. And so this is one story, and then we'll look at the scriptures, and that's one story, so that's one witch doctor. No, we'll leave, we'll leave that one. Uh, back to the last one. Yeah, so that's a witch doctor. And he came to, well, what happened was that our guys showed up, and uh, he thought he's going to make some money out of them. And you don't mess with the witch doctor, because if you do, bzz, he'll curse you, and maybe your two-year-old will die, or something like that. They rule the community by fear. And uh, so he got, started doing his things, and one of them spoke the name of Jesus. And we see that, yeah, Yesu, and he fell down under the power of God. And he came to a few moments later, could you, could, you, could you come back in a couple of days? They came back two days later. He had assembled the whole village, because when he says jump, they'll say how high. So he'd assembled the whole village, and at the preaching of the gospel, him there burning his chance publicly, submitting to the highest power, he, 50 people in that village gave their lives to Christ. That's our Jesus. And sometimes we can lose sight of that in Bath, can't we? Uh, and, 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 you know, it, it, it maybe is less dramatic 
But he's the same Lord calling on the same surrender that he wants from each one of us with the same message of beautiful grace. Now, wherever I go, and now we are going to look, look at Scripture so we can get rid of the pictures now. But uh, wherever I go, people, 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 well, my brilliant guy said, please get people to pray. And I'm still alive because people pray. I'm pretty sure of it. I had death threats. People have tried to kill me. I've driven along a road. 40 people have been killed. I've lived expecting to die. And I've got my friends out there living very intense existence. And so wherever I go, I say, I'm not after your money. Support your own mission partners. I'm not after you coming out to Burundi. That's a relief, isn't it? Uh, but I would love you. How you can share in this is pray. And so there's one there and there's one here. Do you want to just pass it along? You don't have to sign up, but if you do, uh, it just means about six times a year you'll get stuff from me. And there are some of these amazing stories to stir up your faith. So don't feel you have to sign up, but if you do, great. Right, scriptures. Get your Bibles out, keep them out. Luke chapter 7, stunning, stunning story of Jesus' encounter with this lady. And as we look at that, let me just start with a story of a few years ago, and I it was of me hiring out two prostitutes for a night. And it was very high stakes, and because uh, I'm quite well known out there. In fact, I'd got a friend to hire them out for me to negotiate a better price, so that, and also that I wouldn't be exposed. And, and I, she found these two girls for me, and it was at the hotel that we'd built, so that was, and they arrived, and I was very nervous, because it could ruin my whole ministry, maybe, um, this um, thing we were planning. And, and anyway, I sat down with these two girls, and they were dolled up, and heart pumping my chest, and how is this going to pan out? And then I, I, said, I said to them, um, my name's Simon, and uh, you know, I've hired you for the night, and I just want you to have the night off. I just want you to stuff your face and go out, have a lovely hot shower and just have the night off. The only deal is please don't solicit any business from anyone else, and we'll come back in the morning. We'll just have a chat and see if you, see if you want to carry on your lives the way you're leading them. Or, or might there be another way? They're obviously a bit stunned, and I went back and prayed with Lizzie, my wife, and then came back the next morning, and we sat there, and trust sort of was coming as we had a chat. And now, what were those girls' story? You know, they were both orphans. Uh, one had Doreen, she had six uh, siblings she was trying to feed. You know, they'd all had a horrible start to life. And so there's no room to judge, is there? I mean, that was us, except for we weren't in that position. I don't condemn them at all, because you've got to keep the show on the road somehow, haven't you? What would you not do if your little five other siblings. Uh, I, would, I would do that. I'd sell my, you know, my little grace. When I'm asking as a little girl, what do you do when, you, what do you want to do when you grow up, baby? I want to be a prostitute. No, she doesn't say that, does she? That's a ridiculous thing to say. And so let's get rid of any sort of semblance of Pharisaism we might have in our own hearts and minds as we look at this encounter and as we engage with the sort of people that the Exodus Trust engage with. And, and, and hopefully, likewise, let's, let's feel a sense of responsibility and, and ownership of that and engagement at some sort of level because there but by the grace of God go I. And as we look at this encounter, you know, the guy's name is Simon. My name's Simon, so I feel like he's talking to me. But, you know, Jesus, he, he reserved his fiercest words, didn't he, for Pharisees. In, in Matthew 15, 15, verse 8, he said, he taught, said of the Pharisees, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And you see, you, we, at St. Swithin's, we can study God's Word, but, but we can keep hold of our hearts. We can have lots of knowledge about God, but never have really surrendered our hearts to Him. I'm not saying we're Pharisees, but you know, Pharisees epitomize this. They had plenty of knowledge about God, but they didn't really know Him. It's the difference between knowledge and intimacy. And in Luke 7, Jesus has been invited over for a dinner party, 
And, uh, you know, that's, that's a, it should have been a, a big deal. It should have been a, great, a matter of great honor for Simon the, the Pharisee to spend time with a visiting rabbi, but actually quickly becomes apparent that uh, Simon's spending time with Jesus out of sense of duty and obligation rather than of joy and privilege. And, and maybe, you see, in Luke 4, 24, Jesus had said, no, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. So, he's already taken that name upon himself. And so, maybe, actually, Simon's just the doctrine police, and he wants to trip him up in this encounter. I think that's the subplot going on. And by the way, some of these insights I'm getting from a guy called Kyle Eidelman, wrote Not a Fan, and he had a great chapter on this, on this passage, so I want to acknowledge that. But it looks like this is not a friendly meeting. This is the doctrine police trying to make Jesus slip up, trying to find him out, if you like. Now, peel back the layers of culture that we don't get because we're in Bath in 2019, but people would have got that in those days certain indispensable rules of etiquette that you would have to fulfill. The customary greeting when someone came along to your house would be to kiss them. If you're of a similar level, you kiss them on the cheek, otherwise you might kiss them on the hand to show special respect. To, 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 to not do this would be the equivalent of openly ignoring that person. You just would not do it. It like, would be like carrying watching TV and leaving them in the hall when they come to the door. And then there was foot washing, and we do know a bit about the fush, foot, foot, feet washing, don't we? Because uh, we've had sermons on that before. But if you, you know, someone had to wash the feet. It was the slave, the servant. Um, if you really wanted it on your guests, you might do it for yourself. At the very least, you'd give them a, a basin and a, a towel so you could wash their own feet because they'd been out in the streets and picked up loads of, you know, skankiness and with all the donkey droppings around, that sort of stuff. And so that had to be done. And then the last thing, uh, and it wasn't an expensive gesture, but you, would, you, would, you could take some oil and you could just uh, put a bit of oil, olive oil, on their forehead to anoint them as a sign of respect. But what's happened here? When we see Jesus at, at, at Simon's house, there's no kiss, there's no foot washing, there's no oil, and these aren't accidental oversights. They're quite deliberate. Jesus was being ignored and insulted, and everyone would have noticed it. If we were there, we'd all have been uh, aware of it, and Jesus you know, he could have left quite angrily or, or, or just say, all right, I can see I'm not welcome here. But it says, no, no, Jesus went in and reclined. And he probably wasn't the oldest person there. Culturally, you'd wait for the oldest person to recline. But it's almost like every social moor is out the window. And he's like taking the lead. He's very at ease in this awkward situation. And he's like, bring it on, whatever's going to happen. So notice the irony of the moment. You've got Simon the Pharisee who has spent his whole life studying the Hebrew Bible, the Scriptures. By the age of 12, he's memorized the first 12 books of the Bible. By the age of 15, he's got the whole Old Testament down, and that includes over 300 prophecies about the coming Messiah, and now the coming Messiah is right in front of him, and he's missed it. I mean, that is a massive irony, isn't it? You see, here is the Messiah who, whose, whose feet he hasn't washed, who, whose, whose hand or face he hasn't kissed, and who, whose head he hasn't anointed. He knew all about Jesus, but he didn't know him because Pharisees confuse knowledge and intimacy. And there's a massive difference. Let me tell you about the first time I fell in love. So I was at school, and I saw this blonde bombshell walk through the playground. I was, I was like, wow. And I really wanted to, to woo this girl. She was American. Her name was Jeannie. And my heart was thumping in my chest. It's like, Whoa. And uh, so I, you could say I became slightly unhealthy in my um, desire for her, a bit, bit of a stalker. You know, I followed her around. I got to know where she lived, who she hung out with, what her hobbies were. I went to bed thinking about her. I dreamt of her. I woke up thinking about her. Uh, it was... It was 
It wasn't great, but you know, I really wanted her to reciprocate these twisted feelings I had for her, and there were two massive obstacles to overcome. The first one was in the form of her boyfriend, whose, <laughs> whose name, you know, I was a skinny run, I was the smallest, I'm quite tall now, but I was the smallest boy in my year at school, and uh, he was, uh, his name perhaps appropriately was Randy, but uh, <laughs> and he was like the school hunk, and I was little Simon. Uh, so that was a big obstacle. The next obstacle was even bigger because, because Jeannie was 13 years old, and I, I was five. <laughs> now, why do I tell you that banal story? I got to know everything to know about Jeannie. <laughs> And I never spoke to her. I didn't know her. I did not know her. Any Francophones here? What's to know in French? Connaître or savoir. Two different words. In English, you just got to know. In, in Kirindi, it's comenia. But there's a difference between savoir and connaître, isn't there? Connaître is to know a person. Je le connais. I know him. But savoir is to know things. And it's different. And... Pharisees had the, had the savoir, the knowing about, but they didn't have the connaître. And Jesus in, in John chapter 8 said, then you will know the truth. And you think knowing the truth, the truth isn't a person, right? It's a thing. So it should be a savoir. But no, it's connaître because he says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then chapter 14 says, I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the truth. So the truth is a person. And we can know the truth and the truth is Jesus. So listen, we have Bible studies, we have home groups, we have daily devotionals, we have Sunday school. They're all good things. Jesus quoted scripture, he memorized scripture, he valued scripture. The problem isn't knowledge, the problem is that you can have knowledge without intimacy. And in fact, knowledge can be a false indicator of intimacy. And too often there is knowledge without growing intimacy. Now listen, part of the proof of intimacy with my wife is knowing more and more about her, knowing you know, what kind of date night she wants and what books she likes to read and, 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 and recognizing the different stages of the month in terms of mood swings and all that sort of stuff. That's, that, you know, that's, that's like knowing and loving someone healthily and effectively, isn't it? But just because you have lots of knowledge, it's a false indicator of potential intimacy. And that was the Pharisees' problem in Luke chapter 7, and it could be, it's my danger. It could be your danger too. Now, let's just do a little experiment right now, and there's no shame in this, but what we're going to do is that we're going to do, we're going to do the books of the New Testament together. So we're gonna, all going to stand up, and going to go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, I'll give you the first four, and then, and then when you get it wrong, and I will get it wrong, can you sit down, and we'll see who's left standing, okay? So everyone stand up. So this is just to illustrate something. So sit down. As soon as you get it wrong, there's no shame at all. Let's go for it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrew, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude Revelation. Well done. There are about eight of you still standing. I would hazard a guess that every single one of those eight persons, they learned that as a child. Is that right? And that's why it's so important to do 
children's work, and it gets into your head, and like my, my kids are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, you know, they've learned that tune, they've got it. Now listen, having just honored you people that managed to do it, fantastic, great job. You know what? Jesus doesn't give a flying monkey if we know the list of the books of the Bible, does he? Does he really? It's, that's not important. We're not going to get to heaven and have an exam on knowing the list of the books of the Bible. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, maybe some of us, we'd actually like our, our relationship with God to be more transactional and be like that, because then you could know exactly where you stood. And you just tick those boxes and he will accept you. But it's not like that. It's not about not having sex before marriage or, 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 or not, you know, whatever we have our list of nots and do's and don'ts and not drinking, not getting hammered, that sort of stuff. No, it's about intimacy. It's about intimacy. And I love this. The best biblical word for this is, is from the Hebrew. It's yada in the Old Testament. And yada, so Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, said, um, it said, Adam knew his wife Eve. He lay with his wife Eve. And that is the, the Hebrew word yada. And it's defined as to know completely and to be completely known. It's of such a rich, rich word. So, you know, husband laying with his wife, that's a very profound thing. It's a very deep thing to, to know completely and to be completely alone. And it's, it's a beautiful picture of what, what, it, what it's meant to mean, what it's like to really know Christ. You know, there are other Hebrew words that they could have used for Adam uh, had sex with, uh, for, for pleasure or for, or for procreation. But no, it was, the, it was the Hebrew word yada. And so clearly when the Bible uses this word, for no, it, it's much more than knowledge. It describes the most intimate connection. And if you trace Yadah's usage through the Old Testament, it, it builds on that. So in Psalm 139, the first four verses alone, five times, O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know I stand when I rise. Before a word is on my lips, you know it completely. And uh, so, yeah, let's, let's think about that. It's the same word as the one used between husband and wife. It's the same word, the same connection that he wants you and he wants me uh, to experience with Jesus. And, and, you know, that might just totally redefine our whole relationship and, and discipleship journey. Instead of identi identifying myself or yourself as a follower of Jesus based on what you know about him, you now understand that you're a follower if you yada him. And in Luke chapter 7, the Pharisee knew all about him, but he didn't know him. Savoir connaître. His heart was far from Jesus. He didn't know that the visiting rabbi at his table was the promised Messiah he'd spent countless hours studying about. Okay, now follow this. So then we've got, Luke tells us that this extremely awkward situation comes up, doesn't it? A woman comes on the scene whilst they are eating. And they're likely eating. I was in Israel a few months ago, and there's a lot of these setups. You know, you'll have this sort of courtyardish setup, and people are walking past. And actually, you probably could look in, and you probably could crane your neck and, and maybe get some of the conversation. But it was very, it was very open like that. And, and things get very awkward as she comes up uninvited to the table. And it, why is it awkward? Because verse 37, she says, she's a sinner. She's a known prostitute in the village. Now, this is conjecture, what I'm about to say, but it had to be something like this. I mean, what gave her the courage as a woman to broach a table of men in a very male-dominated culture, and not just any woman, but the lowest of the low on the social rung that they all knew? I mean, what could possibly give her the courage to do that? And maybe 
it was something that happened earlier on in the day. Maybe she'd, she'd heard him. She was in the crowd earlier on the day, and, and as she listened to him, something, something happened in her heart. What might he have said? Maybe it's something about forgiveness. And maybe her eyes welled up as she discovered that God actually loved her, that he wanted to forgive her, that there was, there was hope for her. He wanted to yada her in a, in a clean and pure way. Maybe she realized that Jesus could actually put the broken pieces of her life back together. Or, it was either that, or maybe it wasn't what uh, he said. Maybe it was how he looked at her. Maybe in the crowd, you know, this happened right now, I'm looking at each one of you, and maybe suddenly his eyes came on her, and she had never had a man look at her like that. She's had men look at her with contempt, scorn, disgust, revulsion, lust, desire, the whole range, but never this beautiful look in his eyes of utter delight and love. And, and for the first time, that, you know, it was communicated that she had worth and she had value. She wasn't just a sinner to him, but a beloved daughter. And, and perhaps when Jesus finished, she knew that God loved her, that it wasn't too late, that even for someone like her, there was the, the potential that, of hope and that she could follow him. And so, are you with me? It had to be something like that. So she was absolutely desperate to see him again. And she maybe heard oh, he's going to be tonight at the Simon the Pharisee's house. He's having dinner there. And that was a, a dinner she wasn't going to be invited to, but she had to be there. She just had to be there. And so she was desperate. Uh, uh, and so she went. And she, she knew it was a place of condemnation and, and, and judging, but, but no, she, she had to see Jesus again. And it took incredible courage, didn't it, to, to go into that courtyard, to, to come up to the table uh, and to approach that 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 environment of pure rejection and condemnation, but she's got to express that love and affection for him. And what she does next is, is reckless. It's impulsive. It's inappropriate even. Maybe exactly the sort of stuff that Jesus wants from us. So picture the scene. These men are, are gathered around the table, and it's not like our tables. You know, it's, uh, you know, the artwork with feet going outwards and sort of lying on sort of sofa settee type stuff and elbows on the table, and that's how they're lying around. The, uh, and they're, they're eating their food, and so their feet are away from the table. And she'd probably brought that perfume to anoint his hands and head, but those, his hands and head aren't available, are they, at all? Because, I mean, reaching over would be even more inappropriate. So she can't do that. And she sat there, she stood there at the filthy feet, of Jesus. And everyone's watching. It's about as awkward as it gets. We've all been in awkward situations, but this, this would be right up there, wouldn't it? And, and everyone's watching. Maybe some have got their heads down. It's so shameful. You know, they're so embarrassed, and there's a total silence. And what's going to happen? Because they all know who she is, and she feels that familiar glare of condemnation. <sighs> it's so awkward. But then she looks at Jesus. How do you think Jesus is looking at her? He's, he, he's, he doesn't think it's awkward. It's like his daughter's just come in the room. And he's delighted that she is there. And he gives her a warm smile. And, uh, yeah. She's she, she, she might earlier on the day from him. She's never had another man look at her like that in her life. And so she's completely undone. The tears start coming. Just a few at first and then more. And so she falls to the ground. And this is what's going on, isn't it, right now in, in, in Luke 7? And, and tears are coming down her face, and they begin to drip on the dirty feet of Jesus. 
And as she looks at the muddy streaks on, on his feet, she suddenly realized that they haven't even washed his feet. How dare they? You know, maybe her tears are compounded as she realizes the humiliation that he has been put through. And she can't ask for a towel, can she? And so she lets down her hair. And in those days, women always wore their hair up in public. For a woman to wear her hair down in front of anyone except her husband was literally a ground for divorce. On the spot. Again, something cultural that we wouldn't have got. So when she did that, <gasps> there would be that kind of audible gasp from the men around them. And she lets her hair down in front of Jesus, and it's almost like it's a gesture. She unlooses her hair. It's like she's, it's like she's making some form of ultimate pledge of loyalty to Jesus. She begins washing the feet of Jesus with her tears and drying them with her hair. And, and then Luke says that she had this alabaster jar of perfume. And most likely this refers to this gourd that these ladies would carry around their neck. And it's very expensive, but it was absolutely key in their trade because if you're being had sex to 20 times a day, then you're going to use that drop very sparingly, aren't you? Just to take away the stench of the body, yeah, you know, all that horrible stuff. And, uh, and what does she do with it? She just, <laughs> she pours it all out. She enters the whole thing out because she's not going to need it anymore. She pours this flask, this, her life on his feet, and she kisses them over and over. And at the end of the story, look down there, verse 44. Then Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon, I love that, even that little detail, he's still got his eyes on his daughter, on this precious daughter. And so I'm going to talk to you, Simon, but she is my treasure. You have dishonored me every part of this evening. And so he says, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me, give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. And you didn't put any oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Tells that little parable about, you know, forgiveness and those who've been forgiven much and forgiven little. And so, you know, in the end, you have the religious leader with all the knowledge is shown to have missed it. Top of the social strata and at the lowest of the low. The prostitute who intimately expresses her love for Jesus, she gets it. And so I guess a question for me and for each one of us is, who are we most like in the story? Who do you find a closer identification with? And we mustn't patronize Jesus by saying he's just a good moral teacher. You know, he doesn't give us that option either. We must believe with the woman or be offended with Simon. Either Jesus is an outrageous egotist, or he is a unique agent of God, the mediator of forgiveness, to whom it's entirely appropriate to give everything. Now, when's the last time, if ever, you've had an encounter like that with Jesus? Is that offensive? Such an encounter. How hungry am I? How hungry are you for Jesus? It's usually the most broken people that express the most hunger, isn't it? And in our sophistication, we can tone it down. Have you ever poured out yourself before him like that? Jesus continues, verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. 
So do I love little or do I love much? Have I, have I been forgiven little or have I forgiven much? Let me answer that one. You've been forgiven much. But maybe we don't recognize it. In the early 20th century, in Togo, in West Africa, there was this, these pioneer missionaries, and they were preaching the gospel. And their methodology was to preach in one village for a week, build up the church, and then move on further into the interior. And on the first night in this given village, the poorest woman in the village came to Jesus, and, and she was beautifully transformed. And uh, she was the poorest woman in the village. And as the cultural norm was, that each night people would come and bring and lay on the altar something to say thank you to, to God for. But every successive night of that week, she couldn't bring anything, and she felt terrible because she had nothing to bring. She was so dirt poor, and she was being discipled during the week, and on the last night of the outreach, she came forward, and with great joy and maybe a little ostentation, she laid a silver coin on the altar, and the guy that was running the outreach, the missionary, he's like, oh, no, I know Marguerite, you know, she's, she's I know she hasn't got that money. She must have stolen it because she was feeling left out. Anyway, he didn't want to embarrass her, humiliate her publicly, so he didn't say anything there. But afterwards, he came up alongside her and he said, Marguerite, you know, that's a lot of money you laid on the altar. So I know you don't have that. Can you tell me where you got that? And she said, this week, my life's been changed forever. I've encountered Jesus. I'm, I'm no longer living in fear of the ancestral spirits. I now have a purpose in my day-to-day. -day. Even if life's tough, I know that I'm going to be with him forever, and I feel this joy that defies my circumstances, and I, there's no more guilt and condemnation. It's, it's, just so, it's so amazing, and I, I felt so bad each night, and I really wanted to take part in you taking this message further and helping more people experience the grace that I've experienced. And so I went to the nearby plantation owner and sold myself as a slave woman for life for that silver coin. And that was the gift she laid on the altar that night. God, forgive me when I'm self-congratulatory about giving my 10%. Praise you, Jesus, that you didn't tithe your blood. To those who may give much, I went to one of the best schools in the, in the world. To one of the top universities, living on the nicest cities. To those who may give much, much will be required. That's Luke 12, 48. Jesus says some challenging things, doesn't he? And I wonder what we put in the offering plate. He, he doesn't want our money, he wants our life. In all its brokenness. And some of us on that continuum of, you know, where you, we might self-assess. He just wants all of us. And we've all been forgiven much. And he wants our hearts. And he wants us to experience that yada. And so I want to apply this as we're coming to a close now. I want to apply this as individuals and as a congregation on both levels. Do I, do we love much or do we love little? Because the biggest, well, the test of a healthy church is love, love for God and love for other people. 1 Corinthians 13, that famous chapter. Do we, you know, do we really love? And, you know, I find this encouraging because I can tell you loads of stories of casting out demons and healing, healing the sick, and you're like, I cannot relate to that, Simon. And I, you ask me to take a part. I can't do that. But you, we can all love. We can love our fisherman friend over 15 years, and it's, lo it's a long-term game. All our neighbors, again, come tonight. Let's talk about that. It's not rocket science but it's costly. And we can all do this. 
And it's not for the select few. It's a team effort. So last story, and this is from Pastor Ortiz in Argentina. And he was fated at the time. This is back in the 70s when, you know, it was the evangelicals, you know, the, were, were largely a despised minority sect in, in, in South America. And, uh, but he was being fated because his church had gone to 300 to 1,000, the biggest church in Argentina. And so people saying, wow, this is the leadership man and, and God's doing great stuff. And he was like more realistic in his assessment. He said, we just went from 300 to 1,000 largely unloving Christians. Anyway, this one particular Sunday, he stepped forward. Well, no, he didn't step forward. What happened was that the worship guys finished their, 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 their leading of the congregation, and then, and then he, he felt compelled, having prepared a sermon, he felt compelled to just wait, and the Holy Spirit nailed him, and, and he didn't know what to do, and then, so the worship guy's like, uh, should we have another song? This is really awkward. Uh, two minutes. His wife sat up in the balcony. She's going, oh, no, he's really lost it this time. After two minutes, he just came forward, and he stood in front of everyone, and he said, my text today is love one another. And then he sat down. And she's <laughs> Awkward silence. Another two, two minutes is a long time, isn't it? And then he came back to the pulpit and he said, love one another. And he sat down again. Another two minutes. Third time he came forward and he said, love one another. And in the front row, after that third time... Guy turned to his left. He, he said, is there anything I can do for you? And then they started, these discussions started taking place throughout the congregation. There were, there were 27 people that morning in that church who were unemployed. 27 people left with a job. And he was like, well, if I'd preached that other sermon where I'd done all the good exegesis and hermeneutics, and I, you know, I pre- it, was a good, it was a word from the Lord, but 27 people would still have left without a job. And he gave that same sermon for three months. And he said a whole bunch of people left. And he was like, oh, good riddance, because that's all the moaners and the complainers. Off you go. And maybe Tim would like to say that as well. But maybe you would have fired Tim. You might have fired him. Because we're not paying the vicar to do that, to do nothing. And then after three months, he stood up and he said, the Lord's given me a new text. And they cheered. <laughs> and he, he said, my new text is, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And now they got it. They just got it. They didn't need any more. They stood up. They left the building. And they just went out there. And he said it was Christmas time. We had these uh, wrapped presents under our tree. And just, we went out and we, get, we were giving them away. And we started getting inundated at our church office with phone calls saying, are you the church that loves people? Are you the church that care about people? Is, this, is that St. Swithin's? Are you, you, are you the ones that really care? That'd be amazing, wouldn't it? So those who forgive much, yeah, they're going to love much. It's grace. He's picked me out of the toilet. He went that far for me. Yada! Don't get stuck on the Savoir, move to the Connect. My relationship with Jeannie wasn't a relationship. 
few of us this morning, maybe you haven't yet re- you haven't re- really got it. You know, religion is thinking you can get out of the pit by yourself. And that's, that's, that's most of other religions in the world. Not all, but it's most of other religions. Je- Jesus is different. He says, I'm coming down. I'll pick you up. We're not any better than anyone else. We are better off. Because he's paid the price so that we don't have to face the music. And that's our hope. And that's what I'll be talking about tonight. And that's what we're meant to be living day by day down our street with our neighbors, our colleagues. What are you going to do? Can you stand and we'll all pray? If, if you feel uh, open to this, um, why don't you open your hands towards God? It's just a position of surrender and submission and humility. Lord, you see my hands right now. They're, they are empty. They're literally empty. St. Augustine, hundreds, uh, many years ago, said, God gives where he finds empty hands. And I think our challenge often in Bath is our hands are stuffed full, so it's hard to receive. But this morning, intentionally, I want to empty my hands. So I'm looking at my hands, they're empty. It's a sign of submission, of humility, of receptiveness. And Lord, as a body, we'd love to be known as the one, that's the church that cares about people. And I'd love, as a, as a neighbor and as a colleague, to be the one, that, oh, she, he's got time for me. She'll go the extra mile. I can call them up outside office hours. I can cross the street when I'm in desperate need. Father, I pray for every single one of us this morning to have a revelation of yada. And that that is what? To know completely and to be completely known. That's what you're, you're offering and you want for each one of us. May we not settle for less than that. Lord, may all of us move beyond the, connect, beyond the savoir to the connaître. May all of us recognize that we have been forgiven much and receive and embody, incarnate, and share this beautiful, costly grace. And Lord, on one level as an outsider, although I feel very much part of the body here, I want to speak blessing over this body. Lord, I want to speak a, a new season of commitment and surrender and passion for the glory of your name, of focus amidst so much distraction, of focus that we are going to be your people in our village, in the city, wherever we're from. Here I am, send me. I'm in. Not any better, but better off and sharing this message. Beautiful, beautiful grace with the lost world. So fill us with your Holy Spirit right now. Come Holy Spirit, fill us and have your way. Press on and meet with the Lord. He wants to meet with you.